I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have on the show Kat Hidalgo, who covers private credit for Bloomberg News in London. How are you, Kat? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me on, James. We're very excited to get your take on the markets. Thanks very much for joining. We're also delighted to see Andrew Chan, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in Hong Kong. We'll be coming back to Andrew a bit later in the show to talk about the brewing mess in Chinese debt markets. So do stay with us. But first, Kat Hidalgo with Bloomberg, New- Bloomberg News. You've been all over the private debt story. The deals are getting bigger and bigger, breaking all records. There's a $5.3 billion loan package in the market right now. At the same time, fundraising is ramping up. Oak Tree looking to raise $18 billion for a single private debt fund, which would make it the largest ever. And pensions are being urged to allocate more to the strategy, which is enjoying what Blackstone has called a golden moment. However, we're starting to see evidence of growing risk, similar to the signals we've been getting from the public bond and loan markets. There are risky companies obviously involved in this um, private credit market, and they're borrowing a lot of money where there's lot, a lot of transparency or regulation. Rates have soared, earnings are slowing as recession looms. Some of those borrowers borrowers just can't keep up. What's the situation, Kat? How bad is it out there when we look at private credit defaults? Well, it's a really interesting situation. The problem is that we don't really know. It really is a very opaque and, and private market. So we can rely on some surveys, um, a bit of data here and there. For example, uh, Proskauer, which is a law firm, releases a private credit default index. And uh, their Q2 iteration, which came out recently, shows that there was actually a decrease in the number of defaults. And that's amongst US companies. But that was after two consecutive quarters of an increasing rate. Right now, their default rate is at 1.64%. And so that's in the US. and, And that is still considered quite low but other than that we really just have to rely on anecdotes and um, things like the general default rate which you mentioned is is kind of ticking up and and these things do indicate that there is more stress in the market but not not by an overwhelming sum and and there's also a difference between loss rates and default so so there's a lot of different things happening what i can say is that what we're gathering from the people that we speak to from fund managers and investors in those funds is that there has been a noticeable increase in stress but it's not dramatic or worse than other parts in the market the kind of the typical thing that you'll hear from a fund manager is that they'll say they're hearing other portfolios struggling but that their portfolio is doing great Right. As you mentioned, we just don't know in some cases. So it's very difficult to actually measure this stuff. And that for markets is problematic. Usually, is there something you think that that's, you know, we're just not able to track that, that, you know, could be worrying? Is there something blowing up somewhere that we just can't see? I think it's, 
again, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to say. There's a, there's a possibility of that, but one hopes that most of these funds are small enough and the allocations that pension funds and insurance companies have to these funds are small enough that if there was to be a major blow up, we wouldn't see too much systemic risk. Um, but you know, we're keeping our eyes out for it and and I I don't I don't want to call out and, and, and say that I'm sure there's nothing nothing huge or wrong in the market. Um, it's it's something that we're following very closely. So based on what we can see and what we can measure, what kinds of companies are struggling at the moment and, and why are they struggling now? So I think one interesting area is actually um, that businesses that suffered in COVID are falling out of favour, of course. They just can't handle the amount of stress that they've had over such a long period of time. Um, but also uh, that businesses that might have done really well in COVID, uh, that kind of really enjoyed those those tailwinds that they saw out of COVID, are now no longer enjoying them and, and struggling as a result. Um, I think also the, the other trend to watch out for is uh, that you're also more likely to see assets that have been held on to for a long time by their private equity firm that probably should have been sold off previously and been able to refinance their debt. But because of the slowdown in M&A and, and refinancing because of higher interest rates, they no longer have access to those lifelines. So it's those kind of older businesses. Are they in any particular sector? I mean, are they particularly kinds of businesses that we're, we're more focused on? Are they, I mean, the ones that did well in, in COVID are the ones that, that we were using because we were all locked in our house and we couldn't get out. But what kinds of, when we talk about the kinds of companies, what, what, what sectors are they in? What, what kind of businesses are they in? So there's the usual suspects. We've retail businesses, the obvious ones, things like casual dining. Um, but what's interesting about private credit is that they really don't focus on that those on those sectors. You know, you've got the odd specialized fund and the odd investment in most funds. But typically, a private credit fund will focus on things like technology and healthcare, which is why I thought that this one example that we tracked down of um, a business being taken over by its lender, uh, it's called Envia, it's a care home operator in, in Germany. I thought this one was really interesting because people have written ad nauseum about how bets in the healthcare space could go belly up, but it would be actually really detrimental to see a wholesale shift in the credit quality of healthcare businesses on the private credit industry, just because they're so exposed. After technology, it's the biggest area of focus for private credit funds. And, and we know that sector is getting squeezed by labor inflation and regulation. Uh, we've just got to see what happens there and see if it becomes a wider, wider trend, because we've really only seen kind of this, this one example, maybe a couple of others in the past. But it would have a very interesting impact if that became more serious. I guess the, the the country to focus on is that we've noticed a larger concentration of debt for equity swaps in Germany, uh, but we haven't yet been able to discern if that's because the situation is generally worse out there or there are specific dynamics there, um, or if it has to do with technical factors um, in the market kind of surrounding reporting that allow us to actually pick, pick them up more easily than we could elsewhere. Obviously, PMI came out yesterday with really bad numbers for the sector in, in manufacturing sector in Germany, and there was a recession recently there. So it kind of could be either factor one thing that jumps out there when you're talking um, debt for equity swaps, what is that? Why, why are we talking about that in this context? 
So debt for equity swaps is a, a, a kind of a method of last resort for a private credit fund. They've got all of these levers that they can pull when a, a portfolio company is under stress. But the final thing that they'll do is they'll have a conversation with the private equity sponsor the sponsor will say, we're not willing to put any more money into this business. So we're going to hand over the keys to you and uh, and you can exchange all of the debt that you're owed into equity. And now you, private credit fund, are the sole lender of this business. And we wrote, my colleague and I, Silas Brown, wrote a piece about uh, seeing a, a couple, a few more examples of of this happening, and it, it's it's an indicator of serious stress in the market. So that's why we're talking about this. So the debt side, that's when a a, a private lender um, will give money to a private company in a in a in a bilateral sense, almost like privately uh, negotiated deal. Um, that is a loan, but because this company can't pay the money back, they end up just owning the company. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily happen on a bilateral basis every time. Sometimes you've got maybe three lenders, which is what happened in a case called Unza in Germany recently. But yeah, that's pretty much the, 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 the principle. That's the idea. A bank or a lender, they don't generally want to own a business. They don't want to operate a healthcare company or, or a retail company or a fine dining establishment. What happens in this case? I mean, do they just suddenly suddenly shift their business model or what do they do with the assets? It's a it's a really interesting area. Uh, can I give you a bit of context on this, actually, um, just to kind of flesh out the, my answer? So we could do a whole podcast just on the dynamics of these arrangements. Um, but what's interesting to me is that there's this narrative emerging when we speak to direct lenders and private credit fund managers that um, that it's not necessarily bad to have a, a, a debt for equity swap um, that because you, you know the, the the fund is now the equity owners of a business that has no debt uh, because it's all been shifted into equity there's huge potential for upside m- much more so than when you were just debt holders with an expected yield the flip side of that of course is that you know this is not what private debt funds were created for, kind of to answer your question. Many of them aren't equipped to deal with a large number of restructurings. And while there is that potential for upside that's being talked about more and more, there is huge potential for downside. They could lose their entire investment. And and most funds wouldn't be able to make a profit if they had even two or three situations where they couldn't recover their money. The entire fund would not make a profit if if that happened. But, you know, it depends on the fund and and there's a huge amount of variation on this topic. Uh, Typically, larger funds have a more substantial restructuring or workout department. Uh, We've definitely seen some major funds hiring more and more in this field recently. I can't speak to whether they actively want to own these funds. No one's ever said that to me. You know, I actively want to own these portfolio companies. But we, sorry, not funds, portfolio companies, but we, we, we do know that, that some of these larger funds have taken over the keys to more and more businesses. And, and they are, this idea about there being potential for upside uh, is, is kind of on, on their radar. Smaller funds would, would struggle more in the area. Um, but I think what the final thing that I'll say on this is that at the end of the day, big or small, these funds 
were not made to own and operate the companies that they lend to. That's not what was pitched to investors. And it offers a completely different risk profile, much closer to something like a special situation fund. But it's interesting in that, you know, they're, on the one side, they're lending this money at very high rates. They're making a good return there. And then when things go bad, they're actually, you know, potentially making even more money because they're becoming equity owners. So it's a sort of win-win situation. But at the same time, I mean, I do worry because, we're, you know, we see this all the time in the public markets. There is a, you know, a risk of complete wipeout in some of these firms, right? I mean, you must have to risk losing all your money. Absolutely. That's perfect. That's that's completely the case. And I and I think where in private equity funds, it, you've got the potential for huge upside on every one of your investments and you only need a couple of winners of, of big winners to make the whole fund profit overall. But that's just not the case in in private credit funds that's not the way that the dynamics work and so if you do have if you do not recover any of your money on a few investments it can be really detrimental to the returns of the entire fund so looking um back to where we started this conversation you know there are more defaults we are seeing more problems in private credit what is the outlook for more of this you know do we expect a big default wave to happen right so that that we've we've mentioned we we've mentioned that um at the bulk of these deals are done bilaterally i think you said that um but you know so so a direct lending fund might be the only lender to a company so when we talk about a big wave of defaults we have to contextualize that in the relationship aspect of of these funds they 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 really kind of focus on their relationship based culture uh, they talk about how that's very much in place and and so what this means is that they pride themselves on their ability to negotiate and provide flexibility to borrowers so the a wave of defaults will always be tempered by the funds trying to manage these situations more so than a bank would for example so market participants have told us uh, that that this could be a factor in why we've seen so few defaults in the space so far. But just to give you an idea of what these funds can do, there they can they can waive covenants, they can extend maturities, they can negotiate with sponsors to provide more equity. Uh, as we said, they can take keys to the business without it being public or calling it a default. Um, so the the possibility for a huge wave of defaults is definitely tempered by that what would really trigger a wave would be a shift in risk appetite for these funds where they were no longer willing to kind of provide that flexibility they were more keen to kind of crack the whip and be more stringent about terms and conditions and and then of course these companies we can't forget are in in the real economy and and if we had an overall macroeconomic decline that could push many of these businesses uh, over the edge so it's more like getting a loan from my friend rather than having to go and beg the manager of Barclays Bank to give me better, <laughs> better terms and a few more days to pay my loan. Is that right? And they might not be quite as nice as your friend, but that's definitely kind of the, the idea that they're going for. Yeah. Interesting. OK, so it's still a fairly new market, though, private credit. I mean, it's seen such a boom, as we've discussed over the last few years, but it's still fairly new. How does the current default situation compare to history in terms of the level of worry out there right now? Uh, it's it's interesting. Again, we do have very little data to go off. We we really 
uh, can only talk about what we see in surveys and um, anecdotes. We, another Proskauer report um, from April showed that 114 out of 150 private credit executives surveyed, uh, they expected defaults to rise in their portfolios in the next year, which is the highest level in, in the past five years from the survey. But that's kind of what, what makes this phenomenon so interesting is that private credit has never been through a proper recession before this is this is uncharted territory we we can't we can't really say i mean we we definitely know that we're seeing more debt for equity swaps than ever before more defaults than ever before um so and and certainly it feels like people are worried this is something that most people that you speak to bring up um and it's it's something that people are watching closely so, Kat, before we talk to Andrew Chan at Bloomberg Intelligence, how do we reconcile that with all the fundraising, all of the billions in dry powder being raised for the strategy and the ever increasing scale of some of the loans that are getting done? Yeah, it, that's a really interesting question. It does feel like a paradox, doesn't it? But the two aren't actually mutually exclusive. So, yes, private credit is raking in record sums of, of dry powder, especially in Europe. Um, but the data shows that more money is going to fewer funds. So that kind of implies that investors are plowing money into a select few of the largest funds. So this would show that um, there is a fear among these investors, these pension funds, these insurance companies that invest in private debt, but that they are, they do believe in the asset class. They're just a bit more wary of it now. So they're more wary of the smaller firms that they would suspect would be more susceptible to default risks that had smaller restructuring teams that are less equipped to deal with stress. And I think the larger loans are a symptom of the same trend. The, the funds are fearful of, of stress and, and are relying on larger companies investing more in them because they see they see those as a safer option. So that's kind of how I see it in my head. Does, does that make sense, James, to you? Absolutely, yes. We we'll look forward to reading more of your analysis and coverage. Thank you so much. Kat Hidalgo from Bloomberg News. And um, of course, to listeners, read all of Kat's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. See you again soon, Kat. Thank you, James. Moving on to another big topic. As I mentioned earlier, we're very fortunate to have with us Andrew Chan, who covers credit for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Hong Kong. How's it going over there, Andrew? Great. Well, I guess like exciting for, for some of so there's a ton of anxiety right now in markets about the state of China's economy, which has a significant uh, repercussion for everyone else in the world. The $18 trillion economy is decelerating. The property crisis is deepening. Consumers seem very downbeat. Exports are struggling. And more than one in five young people are out of work. And as we talked about last week on this show, Country Garden a company with about 3,000 pending property projects up and down China is on the cusp of default on its debt. And also, at the same time, protesters gathered at one of the biggest shadow banks demanding their money back as payments were halted. So a lot of issues, um, you know, across China right now. You know, great to have you on the show as, uh, you know, as an expert based there. Um and we've 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 been looking at this from different angles um, on this podcast, but but we want to drill down a little bit now into what we're calling local government financing vehicles, um, which is another part of this sprawling debt mess, um, you know, in in China. Can you start, Andrew, by telling us what these 
entities are? You know, what what is what we're calling an LGFV, and how do they work? Yeah, so right now the LGFV definition is pretty blurred because a lot of these entities they used to provide some sort of public service or build some type of infrastructure for the local government, but once that purpose was finished. I mean, its existence was in doubt, and many evolved by foraying into like other businesses, some profit-oriented, mostly profit-oriented, but they largely still remain an extension of the local government. So just, um, but in basic terms, they are entities that are formed to fund infrastructure, schools, that sort of thing in China. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Not necessarily a school, but definitely like public services. Okay. So why do they have to set these vehicles up? Why can't they just borrow money directly? Ah, so say for example, like I want to build a subway, and so they would set up like a subway LGFE, so to say, and so it's like somewhat run like more on commercial terms rather than being built, say, by the local government. Okay, but who is responsible for that debt then? If you if you're borrowing through a through a special purpose vehicle like this is.、Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that you're, you know, kind of distancing yourself from the, ultimately from repaying that debt?、Uh, no. So the debt is definitely belongs to the LGFE, which again is an extension of the government. And a lot of the lenders that lend to the LGFE, whether it's like say through offshore notes, onshore notes, or through bank lending, they understand that there's some sort of implicit government support to this. SPV, so so to say, or LGFE. Okay, and by government, you're meaning you're meaning the federal government, not not the, the local or the state government, right? Oh no, the local government. Okay, okay, so it, it doesn't necessarily roll up to the federal level.、Uh, no, not to the central government level. Okay, so just to like put this in perspective, I mean, it's a we're hearing huge numbers. How much debt do they actually have? Okay, so using the term though, we actually use the bottom up approach to estimate. Um, this China LGFE debt, which could be around like 9.8 trillion U.S. dollars, based on the latest available financial data of more than 3,000 LGFEs. So to put that in perspective, Andrew, how much debt are we talking about here? Yeah. So using the terminal,、um, we use a bottom-up approach to estimate China's LGFE debt, which could be around 9.8 trillion U.S. dollars. Based on the latest available financial data from more than three thousand LGFEs and local SOEs, now looking at the overall financing structure, around seventy percent of this is funded by financing other than bonds, such as bank loans, while around twenty-nine percent is onshore bonds, and another one percent are offshore bonds of around one hundred billion US dollars. So this, a lot of it, is actually sitting with foreign investors. Is that right? Not as much. So one percent of of their total loans or so. Okay, and so the remaining ninety nine percent is onshore bank loans or onshore bonds. Okay, so mostly held by、um, should I mean is it mostly Chinese banks that are that are holding this debt? Yes,、okay. it is. And are most of those banks actually state owned?、Uh, a majority. Okay. Yes. Interesting. So、um, the the anxiety、um, has been around a default by one of these local government financing vehicles. What are the chances of that happening, and what would that what would that mean for for China? Yeah, so、um, I think your question can be rephrased to like, what type of debt are we talking about that is to be defaulted? 
Now, in our view, no LGFE wants to be the first to default on its offshore or onshore notes. I mean, considering the relatively small offshore amount and small proportion in their total debt structure, I mean, there could be very low incentive for LGFEs to default. Because should there be a default of a high-profile LGFE, I mean, investors would likely reassess China's SOE and LGFE issuing universe on a standalone basis without state support. I mean, that could create a lot of unintended consequences, um, mainly because there would be a huge substantial repricing in risk and subsequent refinancing risk for not only offshore, but likely onshore too. I mean, that could lead to a lot of rating downgrades, which could transpire to, in a worst case scenario, systemic risk for the financial system. I mean, right now, we calculate around 20 trillion US dollars equivalent of outstanding bonds could suffer from some form of repricing risk. Because a lot of investors really, um, when they price these state-owned bonds or state-affiliated bonds, they factor in a form of state support. Okay. Um, and what right now do you think is the probability of one of those government financing vehicles defaulting? Is it, is it a high likelihood or is it very, very small, do you think? Uh, very small. For the time being and it goes back to the point that no one wants to be the first one because obviously these local governments they have they operate independently and so if say one province defaults then that pretty much spills over to a read across to all the all the other provinces as well because of the reassessment of state support that's why in the past um actually earlier this year we saw one example, which was called Junyi Road and Bridge Construction in Guizhou Province, which is one of the poorest provinces in China. I mean, they abruptly restructured and a lot of um, the debt was actually restructured on the bank loan side. But if you look at, say, their onshore bonds and their offshore bonds, they remain close to par. Okay. Okay. And of course, if we look at, say, some of the old, if you've been following the sector, you might recall some names such as Chongqing Energy, Beijing Haidian, state-owned assets investment, and Yunnan Health and Culture. I mean, all of them had offshore dollar notes. And despite all of the tight liquidity and the very volatile bond prices, a lot of them, I mean, all of them actually repaid their offshore dollar debt without issuing new dollar debt. So the local government came out, stepped, uh, stepped up, and helped them. And in particular, one notable example is Chongqing Energy, which actually repaid all outstanding onshore and offshore bonds before filing for bankruptcy. Okay. So that shows you like the importance of any local government to not be the first to default on a public note. Obviously, they don't, they don't want to, but they might ultimately be forced to because of maturity walls or you know lack of liquidity or whatever. I mean, um, what can the actual what can the government do to prevent this happening? How can they help out here? Yes. And so I think the key backstop will be the state-owned banks. And so they've done most of the lending um, for it. And so, of course, the exact answer to this question, like how much bad loan losses can China's banking system absorb, that's for another podcast and for the banking team. But um, again, if we look at, say, the overall picture, the total assets of FI in China, according to the China Banking and Insurance Commission, I mean, is around 57 trillion US dollars with shareholder funds of close to $5 trillion. So again, depending on your own NPL assumption, I mean, there appears to be a decent capital buffer. Now, of course, 
the banks would likely need to raise additional capital somewhere, somehow. But that, again, that's another question for the banking experts. But the key point remains, and that is the banks can act as a temporary backstop should LGFEs need to urgently restructure their loans. Of course, such actions will need to be coordinated by the local and central government. Do we expect losses to those banks? I mean, is there going to be a haircut on that debt? There will likely be a haircut for that. And so it depends on on how the banks classify these loans. And so say, for example, the Junyi example I, I, just, I just gave out, um, it's been restructured and the principal, everything has been extended by another 20 years. Now that can be, may not necessarily be considered uh, a bad loan in Chinese accounting, so, so to say. And so as long as the LGFE continues to pay their in- interest, I mean, it's considered a performing loan. What um, analogies can we draw between this and the property crisis in the sense that, um, you know, the Chinese government right now doesn't seem to be doing much to support the property developers. And in fact, um, it seems that um, the Communist Party doesn't really you know, want to um, support them to the extent that, that they want to you know, bail out. You know, there's a moral hazard issue. They don't want to bail out um, mm-hmm. excesses that have gone on in the, in the real estate market. Is, is it the similar situation for, for the local government financing vehicles? Is it a similar situation? Um, I guess that question is more, is more interconnected. And now why I say that is because um, if the central government is not helping out the property developers and they end up defaulting, I mean, I think that sends the wrong message to the entire sector. And so pretty much all the home buyers will, will likely shun future home purchases of state-owned developers and non-state-owned developers. And so that will have a trickle-down effect, which is the property developers, they won't be buying land from the local government. The local government won't have any money to provide support to the LGFEs. So, I mean, a lot of this is really hinged upon the central government's decision to allow a big player like Country Garden to default. And to me, I think it just really sends the wrong message because this vicious cycle will just not be broken until something substantial comes out from the central government. So again, home buyers aren't buying, developers aren't buying land, local governments become poorer, they can't support their local government via uh, LGFEs. And again, that's the house of cards there we're, we're talking about. So ultimately, do you think this this ends with government bailing everyone out and, and everything just you know coming back to normal again? It will be very difficult. And now why I say that is mainly because um, looking at Evergrande, which defaulted two years ago already, I mean, this mess just continues to drag on. So um, I think there... In my opinion, there may have been some bureaucratic missteps, and hopefully the Chinese government can um, try to reverse this, so to say, because the property sector has just been dragging everything down. And if you look at, say, the second order, third order effect coming from it, I mean, property accounts for a quarter of GDP, and um, if that's dropping, you can't meet your 5% target. Um, you're starting to see rising unemployment in the sector, um, not only on the tertiaries on the property level, but all the ancillary sectors as well. So it can be your cement, your white goods, electronics. And so a lot of bad debt will start to pile on the supplier side, construction companies with razor-thin margins. 
And of course, you have the declining housing prices, which will lead to negative wealth effect. Again, which isn't good. So, and so everything is really hinged upon the central government's actions now. Okay. Um, obviously, there's, there's going to be many different parts of this, and it's going to be you know a long uh, drama to come. But right now, what are the key takeaways for investors, do you think, Andrew? The key takeaway for investors, um, I think the first one is that the China high yield sector is unfortunately close to uninvestable, as we've seen with the property crisis saga, because I don't think we've ever seen a sector be decimated in such a way that there are over a hundred billion U.S. dollars in investor losses, and over two hundred something bonds are below ten cents, which pretty much assumes very very pessimistic recovery expectations. That's one. And then I guess on the second front is that if there are RV opportunities on the LGFE side, and it goes back to our our thinking is that the LGFEs, no matter what, needs to be saved because um, one, the total amount outstanding on the offshore notes is very small in in the grand picture. And second of all is that um, a lot of these LGFEs are pricing to be rather distressed at somewhat over 15%. And so on that front over there, there could be RV opportunities over there if our thesis is correct that the LGFEs will be saved. RV as in relative value? Yes. Okay. So just to wrap things up, what's the next big thing to watch? I mean, we're looking um, right now at the country garden grace period. Everyone's worried about default there. Um, are there any sort of triggers or any events that you think we should be looking out for in terms of you know the calendar coming up? Two things. I guess the first thing would be definitely like... Um, how the Chinese government is plans to deal with this because obviously there's a spillover effect not just domestically but internationally as well. Um, their demand for com- commodities will likely be adversely affected. Um, all your geopolitical goals such as China's One Belt, One Road initiative may definitely slow down on that front. That's more of the macro picture. Um, on the company and sector-wise basis, I think a lot of investors will start to focus on um, the remaining survivors and even um, the SOE developers. Because, again, with the country garden debacle, I mean, it seems like no one is safe. And so those state-owned developers, a lot of them still have bond prices in the $0.80, $0.90 levels. And so if one of them starts to um, become a bit shaky, I think that would really put the nail in the coffin for the entire sector. Thanks very much. Andrew Chan of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out and hope to see you soon on the show again, Andrew. Thank you very much, James. And thanks again to Kat Hidalgo from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great credit scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.